Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, happy Sunday, everyone. I think it's, uh, it's a big day today. We've got some amazing guests coming on the line, but uh, I'm very excited because in the studio with me, I've actually got real people, which is uh, the second week for a year, which is weird. Had to shower. Um, you know how it is. Uh, Good morning, Stacey. Hi, Dr. Shane. How are you going? Oh, good. It's good to see you. It's been quite a while. It has. I mean, I, I just can't realize. I didn't realize how how deep you are. You know, you've got real depth in in in. in oh, you mean as a person or like three three dimensionally? Just, that's right. So used to seeing you on the flat screen. Nice to see you. That's very funny. And Ailey, who just ran into the studio oh a second ago, she's running late. I'm just out of. Completely out of touch with what I need to do to get here. The traffic was insane. Yeah, now your microphone is uh, sounding a little odd. So I'm going to get you to switch over to that one there and we'll see how we go. Um, we'll try that. There we go. How's that? Oh, that there we go. A bit better? There we Beautiful. go. Much oh, better. Gosh. I think the other one's Just dead. forgotten how to do everything. Well, the other one probably hasn't been used in a year, so it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's gone. And uh, we've actually got a new on the line. She couldn't make it in with some car problems. Good morning, a new. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Happy Sunday. Uh, it's good to see you, and uh, we will get you into the studio at some stage. For those who have been listening to the show for a while, Anu's one of our uh, and noobs, new recruits. That's, you know, noob. And uh, she's never been inside Triple R. She's been on the show so many times, but never managed to actually get to the studio. So next month, I hope. We'll be good. Next month, for sure. Yeah, that'll be fantastic. Now, we're going to jump straight into some news because we've got uh, quite a few guests on the show uh, later today. So, Stacey, do you want to start us off? What's been floating your boat this week? Yeah, sure. So, I came across some pretty fascinating research relating to exploring the link between our gut microbiome and Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, most of our listeners might be aware that Alzheimer's disease is a neurodegenerative disorder and um, it causes nerve cell death um, and has quite catastrophic symptoms um, such as memory loss, um, gradual decline in cognition and, and um, quite marked alteration of behaviour and mood. So it's really yep. impactful on individuals um, individuals and, uh, and their carers and loved ones. Uh, unfortunately, the causes of Alzheimer's disease are not well known. Um, we know that age is a major risk factor for disease. Yep. Um, and what happens when you age, there's some changes that can occur into your DNA. Um, not These are epigenetic changes. And by that, I mean um, not altering the underlying sequence of your DNA, but altering how the body reads the DNA. And these are driven by behavioral and environmental factors. And so what um, these changes are called um, DNA methylation. So you get these methyl groups um, bonding to certain parts of the DNA, and that um, influences how the genes are expressed. And so this DNA methylation in the brain is associated with the risk of developing neurological changes, including Alzheimer's disease. Right, yep. yeah. So you're with me? Yeah, yeah yep, with okay. you so far. Good. So the hypothesis is, is that the gut microbiome, so this complex sort of array of microorganisms in our gut, might influence DNA methylation and therefore expression of genes encoding Alzheimer's disease. Oh, my God, I'm regretting my breakfast. Oh, <laughs> don't worry. Don't worry yet. Um, so this study came out of um, Japan, and what they did is it was uh, based uh, on a mice model. And so they looked at mice carrying genes strongly associated with Alzheimer's disease, as well as control 
wild type mice um, and they wanted to measure three factors. So they wanted to look at the composition of their gut microbiome. Um, so they assessed this through uh, fecal, fecal samples. So they fed the mice the same diets. Yep. Then they wanted to assess the cognitive and behavioural abilities of the mice. Mm-hmm. So through a range of tests such as you know navigation through a maze and interaction with novel objects. And then the third component was looking at the regions and amount of DNA methylation occurring in the hippocampus of uh, dissected brains of these mice. So the hippocampus is the area within our brains that support new uh, memory formation. And um, they compared these factors and they wanted to look at correlations between those three factors. And what they found was that there was evidence between the biodiversity and composition of the guts, of the, the bacteria in, in the, the gut of these mice. And that was linked with um, various ac- aspects of um, mouse cognition and behaviour. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I mean, there's so much research mm. going on uh, to understand um, microbiome and the impact uh, that that has on human health. What they weren't able to do was disentangle the direction of that relationship. Yep. So yep. it might have been that the microbio, the microorganisms um, influence DNA methylation, which therefore influences um, cognition and behaviour, or is it that the DNA methylation in these uh, mice carrying the AD genes um, alter the intestinal pathology of the, yep. of the gut? Correct. So, yeah. I've been saying it for a while, but the gut microbiome thing is going to be big. It, Over the next two decades, it's going to just blow up. And um, sadly, poo transplant Ports seem to be transplants. transplants. Seem to be less <laughs> exciting as they well were they ever? Oh, I don't but, know whether they were ever <laughs> that exciting. But, but it was the idea they would you know they would do some amazing stuff and there's a lot of work going on there which is really interesting as well. Yeah, mm. absolutely. All right, uh, we might zip over to a new because she's uh, looking pretty excited and I know a new. Did you cry when the Mars lander landed? Did you cry? I cried. Absolutely. Yeah, I cried. It's just like a tear just trickling down my face. Just, you know, it's lots of anticipation around it. And, of course, you can just really relate to all the engineers who are sitting in that control room. And, you know, you can see their faces and hear their voices. And they're real people. They're, all their dreams have gone into this mission. It's their job. They're yep. working on it hours and hours a day. And for you know, a decade. Just to see it all pay off. Yeah, for a decade, mm-hmm. too. We're not talking about, you know, a year's Absolutely. work. These people are working on it for a long time. Um, for, for those of you out there who aren't aware, we as humans, I say we, wasn't me and I knew, it was more than us, um, landed a, a second very large, I just say car sized rover on Mars about a week mm-hmm. ago, just over a week ago. Um, but one of the things, of course, that Anul and I have been fascinated by is the video that's managed to come back of that landing sequence. So if you haven't seen this, jump on the NASA.gov website. It's the first time ever, um, I, I suppose, with the exception of the Apollo missions, where there are actually humans in the landing, so they could observe it. This is the first time we've ever observed a landing on another celestial body, right, Anu? It's pretty special stuff. Absolutely, and it's been captured by 23 cameras, I believe. Mm. And, of course, we also have some audio as well coming back. Um, I think there was a communication delay there um, when the landing was actually occurring, but we have been able to listen to it afterwards and get some of those very first audio recordings back from Mars. So it's all very interesting stuff. Um, Big month for space, uh, Mm -hmm. February 2021. We also had the United Arab Emirates uh, approach the red planet with hope, which was successful. And we've also had uh, China's Tianwen-1 as well. So we've had the probe enter the Martian, uh, go into orbit into Mars. And they've actually recently, I think about two days ago, um, lowered their orbit just by a little bit to prepare for a soft landing of a rover, which is coming up in May. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah. So China's also looking at um, a future, you know, mission to return samples as well. So that's all very exciting. And of course, Perseverance is also going to be preparing to um, collect samples and drop them off for the next mission, which will go back and collect them. And this is going to be the very first time that we'll have samples of regolith back from Mars. So very exciting stuff. And of course, the audio recordings are now like widely available all over, all over the internet. They're going viral. And we can hear... Um, what appears to be wind on Mars, which really is so intriguing because it really begs the question with such a thin atmosphere, like how does it have such an active weather system? Mm. And now Ingenuity, which has its first flight over in April coming up, possibly might be able to answer some of these questions for us. So That's it's a very little, exciting time. Yeah, the little helicopter that went with the Perseverance rover. So it's just charging up at the moment, as I understand it, because they've, they've, got, to, right. they've got to charge the batteries up, which takes a little bit of time. Um, but And then it will be on its own, own power. It will be released from the rover and running on its own power with solar... solar um, powering of its batteries and then we'll see if we can fly a helicopter on mars which is just i mean the amazing thing about the weather there in the atmosphere of course is that there were some images of dust devils that um previous um photos from the previous rover picked up mm -hmm. which is kind of cool so there's some weird stuff going on which will be really interesting more dynamic than i think a lot of people have um, absolutely thought. And there's a lot more um, autonomous uh, technologies going along with these rovers as they move forward. I do believe the UAE's uh, Hope Probe was completely autonomous when it went into um, mm. orbit around Mars as well. So it's quite global. The autonomous movement is coming along. Machines are learning. <laughs> yep. So much closer to Earth, of course, Starlink has now just signed up its very first Australian customers as well. Yeah. So I do believe they've set up about four ground stations throughout um, the south of Australia from WA through to um, New South Wales. And over the next few months, we can start looking at more and more possibly uh, rural, rural customers who might be switching over from the NBN into Starlink because the Starlink satellites are actually 60 times closer um, sorry, yeah. 60 times closer than the actual NBN satellites, which are sitting in geostationary, whereas Starlink is now sitting in lower Earth orbit and has about a thousand satellites up there at the moment. So. Wow. Big things happening. Stuff. Sounds great. It's all <laughs> happening. We can't wait to get you in the studio. We've got too much to cover. There's too much space going on. Uh, Ailey, what have you got for us? I've well, given you a moment to catch your breath. No, 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 no. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, we've had two really interesting stories about kind of modern stuff that's happening. I'm actually going to go back in time today. Oh, cool. So we've, um, I was having a look at this really interesting article in the uh, the magazine called Weather, which is from the Royal uh, Society for Meteorology. And um, this article was by a researcher from the University of Reading who was basically looking at the history of weather forecasting and I never realised how far back weather forecasting actually went and I'm not talking about modern day what we call numerical weather prediction with the kind of models that we have today. Uh, that first started in about the 1920s with a guy called Lewis Richardson uh, in about I think it was the mid-1920s he decided he was going to do some forecasting for two locations in Central Europe took six weeks to do the calculations by hand and was so far off uh, that basically he um, <laughs> he basically forecast that the weather was going to change by around 150 hectopascals, the pressure, which is about hmm. double the largest change that you'd get between the deepest tropical cyclone and the, the biggest high-pressure system. So a well, little bit got off. it a little bit off, got it a bit wrong. They worked out why it's all good. We have good weather forecasts today. But this researcher was going back further in time and looking at how long we've actually been forecasting the weather for and how long we've been forecasting it for reliably. Now... 
in that sense, you know, weather forecasting has been discussed since kind of Ptolemy, way, way, way back when. Um, it was originally thought to be kind of, you know, these astrological bodies pulling mm. and shifting the atmosphere and things like that. And that idea hung around for a very long time. And in fact, Johannes Kepler, who I'm sure is one of your favourites, Dr. Shane. So is Ptolemy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but he fancied himself as a bit of a, a weather forecaster back in the day. Um, he had an almanac, actually, and a lot of them did, these almanacs of kind of years' worth of weather forecasts associated with the, the positions of celestial bodies which we know today is just mm. doesn't work. But, um, <laughs> but what this article did also show um, was that weather forecasting in terms of thinking about, um, you know, how past weather kind of affects future weather, which you can do short term, actually started in about 1861. A guy from mm. Robert Fitzroy called Robert Fitzroy started publishing these um, weather forecasts in the Times magazine. But the other thing that I found interesting about this article, I never thought about it before. But have you ever thought about why we use the terms overcast, showery, fair weather? Like, where does that those I think words? It was just a lack of imagination. Well, exactly. <laughs> but but showery or, or overcast? What I mean, you know, it's it's they're kind of strange words to describe yeah, yeah. the weather. Well, apparently they come all the way back from the fifteenth and the sixteenth century when people first started describing atmospheric phenomenon and they're the words that they used all the way back mm, then and so the words that we use for weather forecasting today have, have filtered through you know six five six hundred years later which i thought was really really interesting yeah. um but yeah those original forecasts were kind of done you know using observations down by the sea and telegraphs those fantastic yep. pieces of instrumentation at the time would relay that information quickly um and and so robert fitzroy was the first one to really have a weather forecast that was based in at least some proper scientific um, methodology. So that was really, really cool yeah. article to read. Very, very cool. That's yeah. good. That I love some of the historical stuff around that because, yeah. it, as you say, especially those words and working out where they came from yeah. and how long have been using them. Yeah. It's very cool So stuff. showery's been used since the, the 16th century. There you Indeed. Go. Now, folks, uh, one of the things I put out a few weeks back was a request for some of our PhD students to put some good messages together on, um, on COVID vaccination. And there's a couple I want to play today if we have time. And I want to start off with the, the first one, which I, I think is pretty cool. This is actually... Um, um, now let me see who sent this one in. This was sent in by um, Katrina Nguyen Robertson. It is actually a song that she has put together for us um, about the vaccinations. It's kind of quirky. I like it. And, and she's been a guest on the show before. So we're going to play this for you. Then I'll play some music and then we'll be back with our first guest for today. We're out to get the bully, the COVID-19 virus Building up immunity to fight if it gets inside us The messenger RNA vaccine delivers genetic info That tells the cells of our body to make some viral cargo Our cells make viral proteins that definitely can't hurt us But all of our immune cells, they look quite sus Proteins in a vaccine work very much the same Targets for B and T cells to recognize and take game. B cells make antibodies that act like ninja stars Throwing them to neutralize any protein that's not ours T cells are the killers and coordinate the attack And some memory immune cells stick around should the virus come back We're out to get the bully, the COVID-19 virus Building up immunity to fight if it gets inside us The vaccine shows a wanted sign to all our immune cell friends So if the bully comes along, they'll be there to defend Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. 
And welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Gago on 3RRR. We have our first guest in our virtual studio. It's Dr. Taz Van Omen. He is from the Antarctic, uh, Australian Antarctic Division. He's the Antarctic Climate Program Leader. Good morning, Taz. How are you going? Good morning, Shane. I'm very well. Thank you. Look, it's great to have you on. You're our fourth in our series of guests for the whole month from the Australian Antarctic Division, just looking at some of the amazing work going on down there. And um, you're, you well, you work in a small area of um, climate. I guess uh, not much to do there these days. Yeah, backwater, I guess you'd call it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a really um, challenging and exciting area to work in to be I think applying our knowledge to something that matters so much. Yeah. Now, give us give us an idea on what you're doing because I, I can imagine there are two main sort of aspects here. One is climate globally and what Antarctica can tell us about that, but also just the climate in Antarctica itself and the local the local effects that are going on. So, where are you focusing? Uh, really, both of those because the one determines the other. Um, Antarctica and the Southern Ocean around it play such a critical role in the global climate system that you can't really get a, a proper picture of climate dynamics as we call it until you start to understand the interaction of ocean currents, atmosphere, mm. the ice of Antarctica and the atmospheric circulation that connects everything. So we have a team of scientists that look at the, um, the ocean around Antarctica and particularly the sea ice that um, grows and shrinks every summer and winter We've got the, uh, a group of people that look at the ocean and how it interacts with the ice, and that's really critically important because as we start to see mass loss of ice from Antarctica, it's that connection to the ocean that's the driving force. And then the atmosphere which connects all of those components gives us sort of the, the present picture of things. And then we join all that up by looking back in the past at how climates varied uh, with records of past climate from ice cores yeah and in fact that's one of the things i wanted to ask you about because you've been down there i think six six times too yep, yep. And, and how the devil do you pull out a kilometer long ice core i mean how do you actually do that <laughs> uh, piece by piece is the answer we um, have drills which might sort of people think they understand from geology and rock drills the really big difference here is that we are more interested in what we get out of the hole than just creating a hole mm. so a traditional drill might just blast a hole with ice coring we actually have special drills that actually extract um, a cylinder of ice around about two or three meters at a time mm -hmm. so we lower the drill on a cable recover that two or three metres of ice core, bring it back to the surface, take the ice core out and repeat that cycle uh, many hundreds of times for a very deep ice core. And, and how deep can you go? I mean, what's the, what's the sort of the largest section of ice that you've sort of ventured down into using this technology? So in our program, we've uh, drilled to the bottom of the ice sheet near the coast where it's not at its thickest. Uh, that was 1,200 metres deep. And that gave us an ice core that went back around 80,000 years. And that's been, I guess, the cornerstone of a lot of our research in the Australian program. Uh, what we're gearing up for now is to go inland where the ice is thicker and the annual snowfall layers are thinner so that we can get an ice core that goes back indeed more than a million years. We're aiming for around one and a half million years to try and probe some of the really big climate shifts that have occurred 
through that time period. Yeah, it sounds phenomenal. And when, when you pull out one of these ice cores, I can imagine we were just talking about some of the, the samples being brought back from Mars in the coming years. And I'm not sure what dollar value you put on a gram of Martian soil, but I can imagine with these ice cores, it would be a similar thing where there must be a, 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 you know, a line of 100 scientists saying, I want that millimetre. Um, how, do you, yes. how do you do that? How do you sort of divvy it up? Because it must be incredibly valuable, each little section of it. Yeah, there's a, an enormous amount of planning that goes into drilling an ice core. And for listeners that might not have thought uh, as much about this in the past, what ice cores give you is a, a really complex record of different parameters of past climate. The ice itself traps dust and chemicals that get blown in from the ocean or from distant volcanoes. Um, and then trapped between the snowflakes, perhaps the most important, unique aspect of an ice core, we find we get eventually trapped off bubbles of past atmosphere and that allows us like little time capsules to crack those bubbles open and get atmospheric composition and then the third thing we get directly from ice cores is that the ice itself tells us about past temperature changes so we put these things together we get information about all of the major things that force our climate and all of the major changes that occur as a result. Really powerful. Mm. And so, as you say, when we're planning, we have labs lined up saying, yes, I want to analyse yep. that, I want to analyse that. And so part of the planning process is to allocate uh, responsibly the core to the various analyses that you can do at the moment. But actually also, really importantly, because analytical techniques improve over time, we aim to leave a reserve slice of core that you can come back to in years to come and investigate um, further changes. Yeah. So it's a big project. Um, we'll have three kilometres of ice core from the million-year core eventually um, and a number of eager researchers wanting to look at this. Yeah. I wonder, like, when you're pulling it out, are there ever times where you look at, look at it side on and just see, like, a line from some event or something, you know, some volcanic event? Have you had scenarios where you can actually see that something was going on or is it only sort of something you can get when you put it through, you know, various spectral analyzers and so forth? Mostly it's just a chemical change that you see when you analyze, but just every so often you look and uh, it's pretty rare. I've only seen one or two examples where you can see a, a cloudy layer from perhaps a volcanic ash mm. event. Um, I've had the good fortune of seeing a, a layer from three kilometres deep from a Japanese ice core where there was a very strong ash layer tilted in the core and it was really quite dramatic. Yeah, it sounds amazing. And wh where are these cores then stored, Test? Are they kept down there in Antarctica or do you bring them, bring them up? Uh, we do bring them back for analysis. We've gone through and the community's gone through a range of approaches because, um, in fact, if you want to analyse quickly in some senses, analysing the core while you're there and bringing it up, you can learn, you know, get quick results. But all of the really big intricate instruments that we need to use are mostly um, in Europe, Australia and other countries. So we bring the core back, section it up and keep the reserve slices in frozen storage uh, we've got most of our Lordome ice core stored in a frozen store in northern Tasmania. The big challenge, actually, for some of the modern analyses we're finding is that we really need to store the ice at minus 50 degrees. And so we're setting up a cold chain and plans 
for that with the new ice core that we're going to drill. Mm. I'm going to hand you over to Dr. Ailey, one of our climatologists who I believe you know. Hopefully you'll be able to hear her as well. Hi, Hi Taz. How are you going? Um, look, Good. I'm just wondering if you can um, talk a little bit about, you know, you've got cores all over Antarctic and not just from the Australian Antarctic Division, from groups around the world. And, you know, there's, there's such huge differences in what's going on in, in kind of what we might call East and West Antarctica um, with climate change at the moment. I'm just wondering if there's any kind of effort by the community at large to really um, compare and contrast East and West Antarctica, you know, way back when we're talking kind of tens, hundreds of thousands of years. Ailey, that's a great question. And in fact, um, it's really important that we don't put the emphasis on any one ice core any more than we'd put the emphasis on any one weather station when we try and look at modern climate. Uh, so, in fact, the ice core community has for years been building um, networks to look at cores just in a distributed sense and synthesise the results. Um, we've had a really big focus on looking at ice cores that cover the last 2,000 years because, well, for a couple of reasons. First is that Ice cores covering that period, uh, there are quite a few of them distributed across Antarctica, so we've got a lot of information. And the second reason is the last 2,000 years is a really useful period to look in detail at the um, end, I guess, of the pre-industrial period, what natural climate did, and then the entry into the industrial period and really see the effect that we've had on climate. And you're quite right, uh, East and West Antarctica are quite different. Coastal Antarctica and Central Antarctica are also quite different. And by combining these records with different strengths and benefits, we get signals that pick up the climate that from around the globe. And for example, one example is that the ice core that we have from Law Dome, which is directly south of Western Australia, has proven to have some really direct connections to climate uh, influences on Australia. So we can actually reconstruct what has happened in terms of drought and rainfall in both Western and now Eastern Australia. And that's proving to be very valuable to understand where we're heading um, into climate change in terms of how the long-term climate was varying before we um, arrived in Australia. Yeah, Tess, look, it's, it's super inter interesting stuff. And, and whenever I hear about these ice cores, I just think it's like having a DeLorean and being able to go around and check out the past. And that, that new one you're looking at, being able to go back a million years, just sounds phenomenal. So we'd love to chat to you again when the data starts coming in from that and the cores start coming in. It'd be fantastic. But thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, Shane. That was Dr. Tess Van Omen, the Antarctic Climate Program Leader from the Australian Antarctic Division and the last of our um, four guests over the last month talking about Antarctica and uh, all the research that is done uh, down there, which is pretty cool. Now, folks, uh, I have another one of these little messages from one of our PhD students to quickly play for you, and then we'll play some important station announcements. Uh, so here is our second one. Now, this one is from Victoria Kenworthy. She's a student at RMIT University. You might have heard questions or concerns about the speed at which the COVID-19 vaccine has been created. How did the vaccines get made so quickly, when normally vaccines take years, if not decades, to be created and approved? Why was this so rushed? Is this safe? The thing is, what we have with the vaccines being approved in Australia is not the result of one year's work that began at the start of the COVID pandemic but is instead the tip of the iceberg resulting from decades of groundbreaking research in vaccine technology. The difference in speed with the COVID-19 vaccines 
is that the usual wait times which inhibit vaccine research have been eliminated in the worldwide urgency to tackle this disease. With almost unlimited funding and sharing of many aspects of the science internationally, many of the normal slow processes have been overcome. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. In the studio with us now is Associate Professor Sue White. She's a clinical geneticist, the Deputy Medical Director of the VCGS, the Victorian Clinical Genetic Services, that is, at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. Good morning, Sue. How are you going? I'm really well. Thanks for having me. Look, it's great to have you because uh, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's International Rare Disease Day today. It is indeed the last day of February every year, um, which is a day that... Um, where we pause to think about all the individuals affected with diagnosed and undiagnosed rare diseases and uh, raise awareness about uh, some of the challenges that they experience. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that I, I suspect a lot of people don't think about because the, the in a sense the error in this term is the word rare because if you add them all up, um, there's a lot. And, and how many different diseases are we talking about under under the banner of rare diseases? Yeah, you're spot on about the visibility problem because they're by their definition individually very rare. But collectively, we're talking about more than 6,000 different conditions. And if you put them all together, they are a health problem the size of diabetes in terms Mm. of their impact. Yeah. And in terms of if... I mean, I'm not sure how, how much we sort of can do this, but if you because it's often not deaths that you get from rare diseases, but debilitating long-term chronic disease. But how do those things sort of weigh up, as you say, compared to something like diabetes? Yeah, I think the heterogeneity of rare disease makes it really difficult to um, make generalisations. But these are, if we are to make a few sort of typical statements about how the diseases manifest. They often occur in childhood. About a third of um, children with rare disease actually have a progressive condition and die under the age of five. Mm. So they are conditions with significant mortality. But you're spot on about the morbidity. You know, some of these rare diseases have um, decades of morbidity associated with them, um, progressive or non-progressive, and they impact on pretty much every aspect of an individual's life and their family. Yeah, it's pretty substantial. Um, I remember a few years back now, and and my memory here is people who listen to the show know it's not great. I want to say Andrew Sinclair as a researcher down there. Have I got that right? I emceed emceed an event at the Children's Hospital, and I remember him saying that he diagnosed 200 people in a 10-year period. And my, my initial response was, you know, did you only work one day a week? Because that sounds like a small number. But then he talked through that diagnostic odyssey. Give us a bit of a flavour of that, because I think a lot of people aren't aware of, you know, just how long it takes to work out what some some of the kids in particular have. Yeah, I'm going to talk with the diagnostic odyssey about, I think we need to divide our time period into before genomics and after genomics because genomics is having a really big impact on our capacity to diagnose. It's kind of a sledgehammer in the um, diagnostic space for us. But 
there is good literature that um, shows us that on average families spend five to seven years trying to reach a diagnosis and of course that includes some families spending decades and I still see families that I've seen over 20 years in genetics which tells you how old I am um, Hmm. where um, I've been trying to get an answer for them for 20 years and I'm still not there yet and that can often involve it obviously involves a lot of medical appointments and assessments it involves blood tests lumbar punctures mris which on in children often often need a general anesthetic uh, tissue biopsies like skin biopsies liver muscle these are painful investigations for the individual and have a lot of impact on parents in terms of time off work and watching their kids go through some pretty awful investigations. Mm. They're also at the health system point of view, they're really inefficient, they're expensive and they use up a lot of resources. So it's fair to say, I think pre-genomics, we were always travelling the long way home to try and get a diagnosis. It was like we had to look at each of the candidate genes of which there might have been thousands for one patient. We had to go one gene at a time and now I guess we're in a powerful position of being able to do that in parallel instead of in series and that's been a a game changer for us yeah i i think it's quite amazing i suppose partly because of the reduction in cost of sequencing which is i'm not sure what is it sub a thousand dollars now is is that where we're at uh sort of depends a bit on whether you're talking about clinical or research genomic sequencing, but certainly it's in the ball. Oh, excuse me, my dog's barking in the background. <laughs> that is um, unhelpful in no the problem. extreme. Um, but certainly we are um, in the ballpark of under $5,000 for genomic sequencing, depending on the type of sequencing mm. that we that you're doing. And in the research field, yeah, we're in the in the ballpark of around $1,000 to yeah. $2,000. So in terms of, you know, there is there is obviously a, had has been a huge backlog of people who have been, you know, working with, with you and other clinicians at the hospital to try and determine what, what's happening with their children and so forth. But when... When we're now moving into this space of genomics, I mean, what does that mean in terms of, you know, how many people are waiting to determine, you know, what's wrong? What's, what is that time frame? You know, you said like five to seven, sometimes 20 years. What, is there still a large number of patients that we, even with genomics, we're not sort of getting to the answer with, with those technologies or are we sort of are 70 or 80% of them just sorted out? What's that look like? Yeah, so a snapshot would be that um, an early genomic test would diagnose up to around a half of uh, children with suspected uh, genetic conditions. So that's fantastic and Mm. it's probably about five times better than what we did the pre-genomic pathway. But it still tells you that half of the children where we suspect a genetic condition don't get a diagnosis from that. So that's where we've really um, wanted to develop a system of um, rare disease resources to try and uh, really 
uh, enable cutting-edge genomic technologies to be used in the research setting where after the non-diagnostic genomic test. So I guess we had a period of time where we were very excited about the impact of the genomic test and patting ourselves on the back and very pleased with what we could do. And then it sort of became clear that that was brilliant, but only half the story. So now we're really focused in and um, at the MCRI, we've developed uh, a rare disease flagship. And the whole goal of that is to develop systems to help solve these families with really hard to diagnose genet- suspected genetic conditions. Yeah, that sounds great. Now I'm going to hand you over for a moment to Dr. Stacy, who's in the studio with me as well. Hi, Sue. It's Stacey here. Um, thanks very much for, for speaking to us about this this um, important area of research. Um, but could you just take us back a little bit and describe what defines a rare disease? Is it a certain um, cutoff around incidence or, or something like that? How, how would you classify a disease to be a rare disease? Yeah, the, probably the accepted definition is that the disease affects one in fewer than one in 2,000 individuals. Um, yeah. So some of those, if you took the rare, the spectrum of rare disease, some of them, the the more common rare diseases, if that makes sense, you would be familiar with like um, cystic fibrosis and um, thalassemia, for example. Um, But yeah, if you add them all together, we're talking about 300 million people worldwide um, being affected with a rare disease. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And um, yeah, like you said, that has quite considerable um, impacts on those individuals in terms of morbidity and mortality. But given their, um, uh, well, relative scarcity compared to some other um, uh, chronic conditions uh, and other areas uh, of um, uh, health and medical research, do you find that there's uh, it makes um, competing for funding a challenge in trying to make sure that we're, we're um, put, you know, able to, to further the research in this area? Yeah, it's certainly challenging, and I think um, I think the rare disease community has had to uh, tell its story in a more cohesive way for both the general public and funding bodies for research to understand what the impact uh, can be, especially when you're dealing with individually rare um, conditions. But I've really seen that groundswell um, within the rare disease community, both advocacy groups and also uh, clinicians and researchers working in rare disease really um, start to draw that rare disease story together because of the sizable impact when you consider it in its entirety. Mm. It's interesting, I think, um, a parallel there, Sue's probably around, with, in particular with cancer, which, as we know, gets extraordinary amounts of money. But immunotherapy in particular has come from sort of outside of that world in many regards as a, as a, as a tool, just like genomics has for rare diseases, and is having the impact on many, many different types of cancers, even though, you know, that, that wasn't the core area of research just 20 years ago so you know hopefully even though there is uh, as you know as we've stated and stacy's right that the funding levels for individual diseases are probably you know really devastating relative to the impact on individuals but presumably some of these sort of scaffolding you know technologies and so forth for which there is there is really good funding especially in australia around the g- genomics um has has that helped it must have helped substantially Enormously. And I think you make some really good points about the codependencies in rare disease of um, different specialties and different perspectives, different expertise, because 
because these conditions can be really heterogeneous in their multi-system disease, you can't just analyse them from, a, say, a genetic angle or a neurological angle or an immunological angle. You really need... it. No field that I can think of is so reliant on multidisciplinary expertise as rare disease. Mm. And yeah, I think we can leverage off... Um, research that's being done in um, fields that overlap with ours and even the cancer genetics field informs germline genetics you know I guess um, one of the uh, struggles we've often had when we're thinking about getting funding is that um, an assumption is that because a condition is caused by a, a germline DNA change there's nothing you can do about that mm. therefore there's some futility to the the whole question, right? Um, but it, but in fact, that's no longer um, true. We are seeing clinical trials for small numbers of rare diseases have, you know, major impact on um, the the disease progression and the health problems and the quality of life um, that those individuals experience. So it's no longer a, a there are no longer diagnoses that you do nothing about. And even if there isn't a specific clinical trial or intervention, we take better care of children when we know what they have. So even mm. just removing the diagnostic uncertainty is better medicine in my view. Yeah, indeed. Now, I'm not sure if this is going to be an uncomfortable question for you or not, but at the Children's Hospital there in Melbourne, you know, we have an incredible facility and the Murdoch right there on the doorstep as well, as, as, as well as the Department of Pediatrics from the University of Melbourne. What happens to these kids, though, when they hit a certain age? Do they fall off a sort of support cliff or does the or, or does your team and so forth continue like what what happens once they get to that age yeah um we're very fortunate to have fantastic collaborations with our um, colleagues in adult genetic services mm -hmm. so um uh, at other hospitals in melbourne austin and royal melbourne and monash all have really active adult genetic services so um, fortunately we have um, established pathways of transition and uh, the austin hospital for example has set up a an undiagnosed diseases program which sort of mirrors the existing one we have at the children's and the murdoch children's research institute which means that for those individuals where we've had our best go but we get mm -hmm. to 18 or 20 years of age and we still haven't made a diagnosis that there's a pathway right. for those individuals to to stay in that um, research area. Yep, now that sounds great. That's just before I let you go, is there anything that you'd like our listeners to do for International Rare Disease Days? Is there some sort of support or, or other advocacy or that that you need from, from those listening? Well, it's really wonderful to be able to chat to you about Rare Disease Day and I guess um, I'd be interested for your listeners to jump onto their preferred social media and check out uh, posts from support and adv advocacy groups about Rare Disease Day. Have a think if you know anyone with a rare disease and uh, how you can raise awareness in, in your pocket of the world because the, the more educated we are about it, the better we will do as uh, uh, individuals in our rare disease community. Yep. Look, thanks so much, Sue. I think this is one of the areas that, you know, as many know, I, I've supported for many years on the show and partly because usually it may be a rare disease, but the impact on the individual and their families and friends is often extraordinarily heavy. And when there are no answers in sight and even using the term diagnosis 
diagnostic odyssey I find is very disturbing and, and it's gutting for, for so many parents and, and family members. So thanks so much. Keep up the good work there at the Children's and um, hopefully more and more people will get answers from this new genetics technology. Thanks very much. It's great talking to you. Folks, uh, that was Associate Professor Sue White, a clinical geneticist from the Department of uh, the Department Medical Director of the VCGS, which is the Victorian Clinical Genetics Services at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We're going to take a break for some important station announcements and some music, and we'll be back in just a moment. Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Welcome back, folks. You are listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. We've got a few minutes left, and we thought we'd grill Dr. Ailey because we haven't had our climatologist in the room lately. What's going on with summer, Dr. Ailey? Did we skip it, or did I get the months wrong? <laughs> no, no, no. Don't worry. Your calendar's correct. <laughs> Your calendar's correct. It has actually been the coldest summer in 19 years, though. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So kind of Melbourne and Adelaide and kind of that southern, you know, far southeastern part of Australia really copped it. Um, yeah. yeah, so it was – although, funnily enough, we say – you know, it's been the coldest summer in 19 years. Still only just below average. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? So if we look at kind of average temperatures, kind of, you know, the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, whatever, yep. you, you know, your average, I think we're about 0.2 degrees or something below, um, kind yeah. of compared to the last few years where we've been, you know, one, two degrees above. Yep. So yep. it's actually funny how our perceptions change, I think, um, in, in the sense that, you know, we've felt that this is really cold, but Actually, this is kind of about what summer used to be like. Yeah. A little bit colder. But well, see, uh, I don't remember as a kid these days of 44. Yeah, no. And I remember once, about 20 years ago, I had this air conditioner yeah. and it stopped working on one of those days. They had yeah. people coming over and I phoned up the company and they said, oh, yeah, our machines, mate, they don't work over 42. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what, what's the point of that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it was just they weren't designed for it. No, no, that's yeah. right. And it's funny because I, I don't think people kind of, you know, you hear people say, oh, you know, we get over 40 every year or whatever. Yeah, yeah. We actually don't. don't. Yeah. In Melbourne, we actually don't. 40 degrees is kind of a once every two years. Well, that's thing. what Mildura's there for. Right? Yeah, well, exactly. Mildura always had those really hot days. Yeah, absolutely. Melbourne Absolutely. That, absolutely. Right? But yeah, this summer's been, you know, it's quite, and it's also, I think it's also felt cooler because it's been quite cloudy as well, right. which is the other thing. Because yeah, right. the funny thing is, minimum temperatures haven't been that cool. So right. maximum temperatures have been quite cool because, you know, you don't get the sunshine through. Uh, minimum temperatures haven't been too bad. Um, but overall, yeah. Yeah, since 2002, I think it was the coolest summer. So, um, but you know, we can blame La Nina for this. So, yep. for those who might have heard of of the old La Nina, basically, it kind of changes our weather patterns. All stems from the the tropical Pacific Ocean, kind of around Tahiti. Mm. And so, what's happened is um, basically we get. Uh, kind of cool temperatures in the Pacific and it, it um, accelerates the trade winds, which are kind of the easterly winds that you tend to get, you know, those cool easterly winds that you get in the tropics. Accelerates those, really encourages a lot of, um, basically a lot of clouds and stuff of northern Australia and kind of changes the, the atmospheric circulation patterns around Australia and, yeah, we get cooler, cloudier weather. So it's been wetter across the country, has been cooler across the country, but, yeah, Melbourne and Adelaide have been particularly cool. And I, I love ripping out the term Southern Oscillation Index because it's the only weather term I know. <laughs> but um, we, we can monitor this. And, and yeah. 
how is it going? Like, is the La Nina still strong or is it weakening? Yeah. What do we expect? So um, the interesting thing about La Ninas and their opposite counterparts, El Ninos, is that they really have this very strong what we call seasonal cycle. So they mm. tend to brew up kind of June-ish, June, July, um, and they tend to peak in kind of the early summer, so kind of December, January, and then they fade away and oftentimes they'll fade away in autumn, so kind of March, April. But the interesting thing is that the, the Bureau's outlook actually still has quite cool um, and wetter conditions for the next three months. Um, interestingly, with La Niña's too, sometimes they will give you a double whammy. So sometimes you can get a couple of years in a row rather than just one year. Um, good example of that was kind of 99 and 2000. We had these two years in a row. Mm, mm. Um, as Yeah, so so look, we'll just time will tell basically. Yep. But um, yeah, it should start to break down soon. Yeah, well, it sounds good. Maybe there'll be some nice snow this year in well, Melbourne, Lake Mountain and funny, so forth. It's funny you say that though, Dr. Shane, because even though it was cooler, um, we had a lot of rain. This is yeah. the problem. The systems that are starting to come through now, you get <coughs> snow, then you get rain. So it gets washed away. Yeah. I don't like it. No, I don't like I don't it. But I do like the cooler summer, actually. I'm, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not big on 40 degrees. Yeah. No. <laughs> anyway, a big thank you to our guests for today and a thank you to Anu, who was on the line earlier. Couldn't get into the studio, unfortunately, but uh, good to see you, Dr. Stacey. Nice to see you. And yes. I think I'll be here next week as well. Oh, yes, that's right. You are yeah. next week. Yes, so two weeks in the studio. Mm-hmm. Jeez. Unreal. And uh, Dr. Ailey, you, you just made it. You're I just stuck made in... it, but I'm so excited to be here. It's oh, great look, to it was, be back in the studio. It was great to have you guys back in. And from my perspective, it's you know it was a bit lonely last year, so Aww. it's good to good to have you back. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will chat to you again next week. We've got a big show next week coming up. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteinagogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.